Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. My guest on the latest Read All About It podcast is Teresa Talbot, who is a BBC Radio Scotland presenter, best known as the voice of traffic and travel and as the former presenter of the Beach Grove Potting Shed. Having studied economic history at Glasgow University, where she gained an honours degree, she tried numerous careers, including library assistant, medical rep and Pepsi challenge girl, an intriguing addition to her CV that we might explore further in the podcast, before embarking on a career in radio. Teresa's broadcasting career has been a varied one, She was a freelance comedy writer for BBC Radio Scotland, has produced music documentaries for both Radio Scotland and Radio 2, and even sang for children in need. Teresa is also an author, writing three crime novels featuring investigative journalist Una O'Neill, The Lost Children, Keep Her Silent and The Quiet Ones, as well as This Is What I Look Like, a memoir of her life and career. Teresa, thanks for joining us on the Read All About It podcast. Oh, I'm so chuffed to be asked. Um, Obviously, I wanted to, to speak to you... I think primarily as, a, as, a, as an author as well, but I know just from even seeing you on, on Twitter, you know, a, a voracious reader as well. And I suppose the two things go hand in hand. Yeah, I, I'm always suspicious um, if a writer says that they've got no time to read. Most most writers read so much. And I read, I read um, someone had said a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago that they, they never, ever read, but they decided they wanted to write a crime novel to as a retirement fund or... And I thought, Craig, how can you write if you've never read? It just seemed it seemed bizarre to me. So yeah, I I devour I devour books, and I read somewhere today. It's the description was a book hangover when you wake up in the morning. You're so tired because you've been reading the book, and you just can't go to sleep. So I've got a book hangover today. Right. I've also got a slight wine hangover. <laughs> But it's, What's a, book, worse? What's it's worse? a book hangover. Well, the book hangover doesn't have a horrible taste in your mouth. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because any time you ever read of any advice for writers, it's like, read, Just read. and write. I mean, it is the strangest thing. If, read if and read yeah. and read some more. And when I'm stuck, I mean, I teach creative writing workshops and one of the, the it's not a module because it's stuff I do myself, but one of the, the, the topics we cover is writer's block. I mean, so there's no such thing as writer's block. So when I get writer's block, there's no such thing. What I do is I just go and grab any book and I start reading it. And I read for a couple of pages and then I go back and I start writing. So I read more than I write. Right. You don't have a go-to book in, in that situation? Not really. I just pick up a book... Any book off my bookshelf, um, and it depends. Oh, this sounds a bit naff. I'm sort of rambling now, but it kind of depends what I'm writing and what style. So I'll sort of know, and it's not to copy that other book. It's to get inspiration, or it's to sort of just get myself in a kind of flow. Do, do you know? Yeah. Does that sound? Does that sound daft? It's um, it's almost like if you're cooking. I love to cook. If I was cooking something and I didn't really know and I was stuck and I wasn't quite sure what to throw in the recipe, I might go and eat something to get a taste right. in my mouth. Does that's that sound weird? It's like to whet my appetite. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Uh-huh. That's an interesting way of approaching it. Oh, I just thought of that and I, I'll if, uh, if I listen back to it, I'll think, oh my God, women, what are you talking about? <laughs> Can I blame my hangover because I'm talking nonsense? No, I, I, go to, I go to books and I'll just pick up 
Um, not necessarily at the start of a chapter. I'll just open a book, read a couple of pages, just to get me into the flow of dialogue and, yeah. and narrative and action, and then I'll just... I'll it's interesting. It I, I, I agree with you because sometimes, you know, you read a book and it's it just it's almost perfect and you think... That's a standard that I'm never going to achieve. But I always I like that because I think, well, you've got to try and attain some. Oh, know, do you know what? Paul, the other I'm, side of that is if you read a book where you think, I can write better. Oh, I'm so glad you said that because that's how I feel. And you, you sway between thinking, oh my goodness, how did this go on the shelves? Um, or thinking, oh, I can never ever be as good as that. And and it does feel slightly intimidating. And But it's, it's always good to just try and improve and keep working at writing. And I think if you... Well, for me anyway, learning by my mistakes Mm -hmm. and the errors and thinking like my first book, The Lost Children, when I think that it first came out as penance and then it was kind of updated and re-edited and and what have you. But when I think back to when I first wrote that many years ago, long before it was published, I wrote it and put it in a drawer somewhere, looking back to its first form, I would say to anyone starting to write, please don't worry if your first draft yeah. is terrible because <laughs> this was, it was yeah. awful. I mean, I can't tell you how bad it was. And then the second book, although it doesn't get any easier, there's all that neurosis, like, oh, this is rubbish, I'm terrible, I'm hopeless, and you reach that kind of muddle in the middle and you think, what the hell am I doing? I don't even know what this book's <laughs> about. And, and where did he come from? I thought I'd killed him off, you know. And, and sometimes you do, sometimes I'm writing. When I've got a character doing something, and I think, oh, bloody hell, I killed him three <laughs> chapters ago. Oh, what am I going to do? So I have to kind of swap things around. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking back to what my editor said about the way things should be structured. and So that becomes not easier, but it, you, you self-edit. I self-edit as yeah. I'm going along. So in that way, I, I, I try to improve my writing. I don't know if it works uh, or whether my writing is has improved but I, I always work to to um, kind of improve my craft and as much as I teach creative writing workshops I try to go to creative right. writing workshops too because I just don't think you ever stop learning and, and you can always learn from other people and it doesn't matter what stage they're at you can learn I learn as much from students as I shouldn't say as much as they learn from me because <laughs> I, should be be I should be giving slightly yeah. more back but uh, you, can, you can learn all the time We'll, we'll probably touch more on in the crime novels and with a, a really brilliant female character you've you've created that's essential. Oh, delight, Una! I love yeah, Una. I read the, I read the Lost Children and thought, I mean, it's it's very visual, very you can see it on TV. She's a brilliant character, but in terms of the, the podcast, if I can take you back to your childhood, oh so right, the, uh-huh. the first that uh, wasn't yesterday. <laughs> the first. Uh, category is uh, what would your favourite book from childhood be? Well I'm cheating slightly because I've picked the Anderson's Tales and it was a Hans Christian Anderson um, book of Hans Christian Anderson's short stories and when I was a a child I've got two brothers and a sister and they all read they were they would just gorge on books and they're quite a bit older than me so by the time I came to reading the words were just jumping around the page and I just couldn't get into it at all and I thought god I must be really stupid and they loved Enid Blyton and I was trying to read Enid Blyton books and it just, it was just going nowhere. And I thought, oh God, this is awful. I can't read these. And I would read the same page over and over again. And I thought, right, I'm just not a very good reader. And they were all loving the kind of, you know, adventures of, you know, the five go down to Hollybrook Farm and all that, with their lashings of ginger beer and their boiled <laughs> eggs. And I just, and I even remember the, the policeman's name, it was old Clearorf. 
he was called as in clear off and they, they'd nicknamed him all because he'd say all clear off and I just wanted to be part of that world um, and I'm quite glad now I wasn't because reading things about Enid Blyton that she was kind of outed as a, a, a bit of a right wing Nazi <laughs> apologies to any Enid Blyton fans <clears throat> but I just couldn't I get into it I I just couldn't get into it there was a great comment from a woman I was chatting to um, at a, a book event and I was um, chatting away and this, this woman put her hand up you know they always had names like Georgie and whatever this woman put her hand up and she says I don't blame you hen I'm from the west of, the west, um, west coast of Scotland as well and where I come from Fanny just means one thing <laughs> and I remember there, there was someone called Fanny and I'm thinking that's not right even as a seven year old I knew that wasn't right so I bought this I, I meant to bring it along to show it to you it's my treasured possession it was a book I bought when I was about seven or eight from a jumble sale while other kids were going round you know the woods and going out to play I went to jumble sales to look for second hand books and weird stuff and weird artefacts and things um, I was a bit of a strange child and I found this book and I just bought it because it looked it was like a penny or something it just looked really cool it had kind of probably an artificial leathery kind of looking yeah. binding and it was green and it was all ornate and embossed with gold writing I thought oh, that looks dead posh I'm going to buy that and when I looked inside it was a book that had been in an, an asylum because a stamp for oh crikey is it Braid Bar Asylum and I thought oh, that's brilliant because I was quite obsessed with horror movies and things even a seven year old and I thought, oh, that's dead creepy. But my mum was a mental health nurse. And, oh, I mean, that's okay, it was years ago and I didn't really know. I thought that was quite kind of, there was something quite kind of creepy about it all. And I started reading these stories and, oh, my goodness, I was transfixed. That was it. I was hooked. And it was all real dark, dark fairy tales. Yeah. And I thought, well, you can stuff your five <laughs> goes somewhere with their lashings of ginger beer and their smelly old boiled eggs. I think you, I, had, you almost have, like, a, you had something that you're that your rest of your siblings didn't have. You discovered that yourself. You had no pals, obviously, because <laughs> they were always dead popular. And probably, because I, even though I love horror and I love A Sense of the Macabre, and I like, I like, is that how you pronounce that? I've never known how to pronounce that word. And I, I just loved that kind of gothic, you know, and like the little mermaid when she, you know, she gets out. It's nothing like the Disney yeah. film when she gets out mm. the water and she's, it's as though she's standing on um, broken, broken glass. glass and yeah. oh my goodness. And I just thought it was all, Fantastic! So that was my favourite book from my childhood, and, and I've that, still got it. Yeah, I was going to say that. I love that the fact that it's obviously had such an impression on, on you. You've, you've kept it, as you say, as a, you know, your treasured possession. Oh, Paul, I threw nothing out. You can see my <laughs> house, honestly. Um, I, I throw very little out, so I, I wouldn't have thrown that out. Cause I still got it. And do you ever do you ever go back and just occasionally yeah, read the stories? Yeah, yeah, I do. And inside, there's a pressed rose that was obviously from my teenage years of something very important. And I'm sure my heart was broken at one point. I can't even remember putting the rose in. Is that and, a specific tale? Well, no, it just bunged in there. And I'll tell you what else I found. My When I was looking at it the other night, my ticket to the David Cassidy concert at <laughs> Shawfield Stadium in 1974. And I was about, I was about 10. I must have been 10. I I don't know why my mother let me go to a concert. I went with my friend Margaret, and she was a wee bit older than me. That would have been a prize ticket at the time. Uh, it, was, it was two quid, and I, so I found that in there. So that's quite nice. So it was obviously quite an important book 
for me. But I do because I looked at it. Um, I, I actually brought it out because I do uh, World Book Day and I was invited to a primary school to do story reading. So I started reading them the story of the silver um, sixpence or the silver shilling. And I, I'm not sure if you you know that one. It's just, it's an old folk's tale. And it's really, the silver shilling is really revered within his homeland. And then it gets caught up in some change and ends up somewhere else in Europe. And no one wants him because he's worthless. And it was really, so I read this to the kids and the headmaster said, I think it went over their head, the head teacher rather. Um, he said, I think it went over their head. And I was trying to show them that, you know, you can be really revered and respected in your own land and you can be very, and um, you can be doing a worthwhile job. But I was attaching it to the problem with refugees and how, you know, we should respect people just because we see them differently. And, um, and I said to the head teacher, do you think they got that? And I condensed it down and he said, he said, Listen, he said, I don't even think some of the teachers go to it. He says, don't worry about it. So, um, and I read that. So I, I still I still dip in and out of it. I still think the stories are so relevant today. Yeah, because I, I remember going and doing a, a reading at a primary school and it was, it was a, a literacy week. Mm-hmm. So they were asking adults to go in and read their favourite books and I'd read one of my favourite books from childhood. Just a, a, a section of it and then talked about it. And what was really good was actually one of the boys in the class, I think it was only primary six or seven, asked if he could... Get the book to read it after, and I thought that's oh, that's lovely. That's kind of that passing nice? that on to the oh, next oh, that's generation. That's really, really sweet. That's nice. So, I, so that's that's my. I, I do still dip in and out of it. So good, good. Well, we're now taking a step forward, and what I've called this was it was kind of teenage university, sort of formative mm. years when you're starting to formulate your own taste in music, uh, taste in, in books. Sorry. So you've gone from Anderson's fairy tales to something. Sort of not quite a fairy tale, but still a... Well, George Orwell's Animal Farm. Just, yeah. Because I wasn't allowed to say Julie Cooper books because I used to work <laughs> in a library. And I found... Um, I discovered Julie Cooper and I was reading them and they were all kind of romps and they were quite naughty and quite risque. And I was like, yes, this is good. I can read these. And it looks as though I'm not being a bit kind of... Uh, you know, that I'm actually reading something fairly... I, I thought it was kind of highbrow. I used to, you know, put it in... I, I would sort of stick it in the middle of a magazine or something but at least I was reading but the, the book that really had an effect on me was George Orwell's Animal Farm and I remember weeping and thinking oh my goodness this is this is terrible and then I read 1984 and, and I just think everyone should read George Orwell and I've met people today 25 to 35 year olds now very very bright people who've been through our education system people with degrees people who run their own businesses who've never heard of George Orwell and I can't believe that and I put it on Twitter and oh, it's like, oh, I mean, Twitter's either the really good neighbourhood or it's your yeah. Sunday morning yeah. at, you know two in the morning when everyone's pissed and the amount of things I get back to, oh, my daughter's a doctor and she's never heard of George Orwell, so, and she's bright. He's like, no, I'm not saying that they're not bright. What I'm saying is there's something wrong with our system, our education system, or our, oh, am I allowed to say culture without, yeah, our culture, and I mean that with a small C, our culture. I, I don't, I always think it, it makes you sound as if you're slightly superior, but I think your way of consuming knowledge and acquiring knowledge is completely different from this generation, that it's, if it's not a click away, they're not interested, well, and then it's instantly forgotten. Whereas we, we were given a, a maybe a broader knowledge, but also I think they retained a lot. But more. why were we? Why are we not teaching our kids about George Orwell? Why has that seemed old fashioned when it's so? Because our popular culture takes so much from George Orwell. Why are our kids not? Of, of course, if you've never read it, there's loads of authors I don't know about. It doesn't make me stupid. Well, I felt, especially see after the Iraq War and the War on Terror, which is just a classic Orwell yeah. phrase. So ever since then, I've been saying to people, you need to read. 1984, because it's telling you what's happening now, 
before her eyes. But that's it's so it's so much part of our culture at the moment. We we take so many so many words like Big Brother, all the you know the double speak, all the, yeah. the things. We take so much from Orwell, and the the point I'm making is it was it, the, the people that I was chatting to that hadn't heard they were very bright people. You know, they were degree educated, and I just think. What a shame that he's one of our best writers of the 20th century, one of the best British writers, and we're not celebrating him the way we should be. Yeah. And mm. I, Sometimes I just feel as well, degree educated, it doesn't necessarily mean you're... No, you're, they've read other bright, books. But you're bright in one particular subject, it's shown you've got that aptitude for a certain... No, but they'll have, read, they'll have read other books, but it's now not part of the curriculum mm. and it's not part of you know, what we just... Except we've all heard of Ravi Burns, we've all heard of Shakespeare. Yeah. Why have we not all heard of George Orwell? And I'm horrified that we've not all heard of George Orwell. So no, and the point I was making is it's it's nothing to do with that people are bright or not bright. It's just that they've not been exposed. Because I think people of a certain generation of our generation would have, you know, Animal Farm, nineteen eighty four. We would have all come to that book and and our kind of teenage years, yeah. and it. Then has a really profound effect on you. Aye, so if you're listening to this, go and read some George Orwell, and and you won't be disappointed. He's just fantastic, and he's got such a, he's such an economical writer. It's so tight. Everything's just so tightly. Mm-hmm. And what made you choose Animal Farm? I don't know. I just it, it just was it my book that I read at school. I can't remember whether I was given it as part of the curriculum or whether it was just something I read. Maybe it was one of my brother's books, and it was in the house. I can't really remember, but I just remember it really, really stayed with me. And um, like in Egypt, I was reading it as a teenager thinking, oh, no, no, everything will get OK, everything will be fine, it'll all be lovely at the end. And, and of course, it wasn't. And it is, it's just, you know, the, the, the power corrupts and that's it. And I don't care who it is or what you are, power just corrupts. And it's, it's just a sad fact of life. Listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddyhead, and my guest Theresa Talbot, and we are on to the next category, and it fits seamlessly into the previous one because I asked you to uh, a book you would recommend to anyone, and uh, your first reply when you were emailing me back was any book by George Orwell. <laughs> so if people take nothing else away from this podcast, it's, it is. Do you know what? I'm taking it away because I haven't actually read him for a while, so I'm going to go back and reread some George Orwell. But yeah, I, w- I would tell anyone to read to read George Orwell. That's that would be my um, I, I, and I just think it, it's so pertinent. It's never been so pertinent as it is now. With our, no matter what side of the fence you're on, our political persuasion. You know what's going on in the world. I think everyone will find something in George Orwell. And one of the other books, and one of the other authors that you'd mentioned was John Fowles. Oh, crikey! I discovered John Fowles accidentally as well. I was the, the first book I read by him was The Magus, and. I think that was the first book he'd written, but I don't think it was the first book he had published. I can't quite remember. And it's a huge book. It's like 600 pages. It might only be 300 pages, but it seemed like 600 pages. <laughs> and I was, I, was going to, uh, I was going to Greece on holiday. It was years ago, and a friend of mine gave me a kind of battered copy and said, um, oh, this is long before e-books and the like. She says, oh, take this with you. You're going to Greece. It's set in Greece. I said, all right, okay. And I didn't like the main character, Nicholas Urf. I think that's how you pronounce his name. But I kept reading it, and it's really weird that I didn't like the the, the, the main protagonist. 
it's a fantastic book and one of the reasons it really resonated with me was I wasn't sure, we went to Greece and I wasn't quite sure exactly where in Greece we were going with our tent with us and um, so I went a few around a few islands and I went to one island for the day and um, the book was set on a fictional island in a boys school and I was sitting on the beach and I looked up and the page that I was at was describing the scene in front of me oh, wow. I was actually on that island but because it was he based on a different island it wasn't the same name so I had no idea and I looked up and I thought crikey that and must have been the strangest it was experience. the weirdest thing Aye. and there was a wee windy road there was a bakery down the bottom of the road now he'd written this decades before but the bakery had been there since you know the turn of the century the last century and it was still there and I could smell the, the, the bread being baked and that was a school that John Fowles had taught English at that's almost the book literally coming alive in your hands it, I've never I've never ha- had any experience like it because there are 600 pages in that book I was in that on that island on that beach and it was a deserted beach it was just yeah. a wee island it wasn't a kind of touristy island and we got a wee foot ferry over to it so it wasn't a passenger ferry so it wasn't even something that was kind of you know there was a lot of people there I was the only person on the beach sitting reading so on that actual day at that hour I read that actual page, that paragraph, it blew my mind. So it's now, the, the, the building is now a government building, but it was it hadn't changed, and I was blown away, and it really, that, that book really resonated with me. Because I was wondering, my sister-in-law, whenever she goes on holiday, she always chooses, ahead of going away, and then when she's there, she always reads books that are set, whether it's in the country or the city, and I was right, wondering... Okay. Uh, she, and she finds it's almost like a way of getting into the, the yeah, kind of really can, of where uh-huh. she's going. And I think it's a really I've never done it, but I always think every time she tells me, she thinks, I think that's a brilliant idea. Do you know it's a super idea? I, I'd never done it. Um, I, I certainly didn't do this on purpose, as I say. My friend yeah. gave me the book the night before, and it was just pure coincidence. But wow, yeah, it's it's really good. Well, I suppose that's it. If you're maybe coming to Glasgow, read a Glasgow crime. Read one of my Glasgow yeah. crimes. No, there's <laughs> loads of crimes set in Glasgow. If you're going to you know, or if you're in London or Paris or, you know, if you're reading a book set in that city or that, you know, the country or whatever, oh, Craig, it's just magical. I but that's the first time and the only time that's ever happened to me and I was absolutely blown away. Yeah. So I don't know whether the book would have resonated as much. If you read it in Glasgow. Yeah. Yeah. But it was really, and I could capture like the heat because he was describing the, you know, Nicholas, the, the, the main character, he'd gone over to Greece to become a teacher, to get away from a, a kind of difficult situation back home. So every, all these, you know, the, the, the narrative, the descriptive narrative, I really bought into it because I was there. So I... So. I mean, in terms of book recommendations, do you... Do you recommend a lot of books to people or do people yes. recommend books to you? Because and, and, I often, what I always find curious, you know, when somebody recommends a book to you or vice versa, there's, there's a slight pressure either on you as a reader or you're putting pressure on somebody if you're giving them the book well, that you... Well, funny enough, I was off. asked, I'm a, me- I'm a member of a, a few kind of closed groups on Facebook, other writers, other crime writers, and someone had said today, that I hate being a traitor, but can you recommend any other books other than crime? I'm looking just to have a, mm. a, a break from crime. And I'm ashamed to say the books that I, I recommended, initially I held back slightly because it was a guy asking and I thought, oh, well, a guy like these books. And I thought, wow, what are you doing? And I was really surprised at my own thoughts that I wouldn't have regarded the books I recommended as women's fiction. Uh-huh. But because I liked them and they spoke to me as a woman, I wondered whether he'd get the same right. out of it. But I'll tell you what they were. One was Anne Griffin, When All Is Said. That's a, she's an Irish author, and that's her debut. And I interviewed her at the Borders Book Festival, and fortuitously enough, we stayed at the same bed and breakfast. She's just lovely. Another is Paula McLean, uh, Love and Ruin. 
and it was about she's an American author and it was a fictionalised account but she did it almost she it was written in the first person of Ernest Hemingway's marriage to Martha Gellhorn the, the war correspondent mm-hmm. but it was written from Martha's point of view now I interviewed Paula at the Borders Book Festival as well and I didn't really take to the book because I didn't like the cover it looked like a, a war love story you know and more like romantic fiction and yeah. that's really not my bag and I didn't read it. And then I found The Paris Wife, which was based on Ernest Hemingway's first wife and his time with her in Paris. And I found that when I was on holiday in Italy in a B&B. And I started reading it and I was absolutely blown away. I couldn't believe that someone could write in the first person of a real a, a real character. He's a fairly well-known character. I know his first wife's not well-known, but obviously Ernest Hemingway's really well-known. And she just nailed it and I was absolutely in tears brilliant so much so that I, I emailed her and said you won't remember me I interviewed you blah 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 just read the book fantastic um, and because of that I then went home and read Love and Ruin and it was brilliant and really really good and the other one I recommended was Ann Tyler who I keep saying that she wrote fried green tomatoes. She did <laughs> She wrote The Accidental Tourist. Um, Everybody so, should read it. Uh, she's brilliant. So I've just finished reading The Clock Dance, and I went through a spate that I read everything I, I, I could get my hands on mm-hmm. from Ann Tyler, and I found The Clock Dance in... I didn't find it. It was in Waterstones. I had to buy it. I didn't just <laughs> swipe it. And always befriend your local librarian and your local booksellers. They're just worth their weight in gold. They yeah. recommend things. And when I went into um, Waterstones in Newton Mearns, she handed me the Ann Tyler book and I said, right, I'll go home and read that. And it was, oh, crikey, it was just brilliant. So there are three female authors that I was, as I say, I was hesitant when I recommended and I thought, oh, that's not right. It's because obviously they can be enjoyed. And I'm so exactly, glad you yeah. said everyone should read Ann Tyler. But I think what I got out of them, there was so much that was inherent in me as a woman of my age there was loads of experiences that I could draw from and I and that's why I was a bit of there was a bit of pressure because I thought oh Craigie he might not get that or he might not feel that way but then it's not up to you your relationship with books and I think that's the the relationship readers have with books and I think that's when I'm writing it it's no one else's business apart from that reader and this is a strange thing as well because when I'm writing a book and some readers, and I love when readers contact me. I don't like when they contact me and shout at me. I like it when they contact me and say nice things. And I love when they ask me about books and or the meaning of it or what I what I meant with this bit. But what they take from that book is actually none of my business because once I've written it and once they're reading it, that's their relationship and that's such a personal thing to them. Yeah. And I, I speak to other writers, and especially when I'm doing the workshops, and they'll say, oh, I want to do this because I don't want the reader thinking X, Y, and Z. And I say to them, it's none of your business. It's nothing to do with you what the reader thinks. That's difficult because as a, as it's a very reader, difficult. So for example, if you're recommending Anne Tyler, mm-hmm. it's diff- so you're recommending her as, as a reader, as somebody who enjoys her books, but it's different when you're the writer, when you're the creator of that book, because uh-huh. you've invested so much of your, yourself in terms of your work and your time and energy and your passion into it. And you obviously want people to, to well, love it. Right, but the thing is, right, that's a different thing, Paul, because it's not, I, I want people to enjoy the books. But when you're, if you write something, saying, you say, you know, Paul sat down 
slowly or something and then you had to say because um, last night he was actually at an exercise class and he didn't want anyone to know his legs are a bit tender I mean that's a really basic thing but that should come out very slowly yeah, and very yeah. you know you don't need to throw everything in the reader's that's face that's your skill as a writer uh-huh, and yeah. that's but you can't be saying oh I don't want the reader to think bad of this character because you need to let the character develop as yeah. they're going to develop or I don't want the reader to think X, Y and Z that reader needs to think what they think, and your skill as a writer has to develop that character. No, because uh, I, I, I was actually going really No, no, because I was going to go back and I'd mentioned you know O'Neill was mm-hmm. the character that I'd read the Lost Children. And I just thought because I think although I think some people maybe who don't read, read a lot of crime books think it's actually about the crime and it's actually the character. It's the character that engages it's, you, and mm-hmm. if you don't like the character, it doesn't matter whether it's. Because there's only so many crimes in the world anyway, but it's actually what what is good about her is it's you're in, you you like her as a character, and, I'm glad and that's you what like engages her. you. So I mean, the, the subject matter and the story is really captivating as well. But it's it's actually horror that if if you don't if you haven't drawn her well enough, at, then I think the, any book I think it falls. You see, I, what I try to do as well, and I don't know if I do it, and I'm I'm hoping that I'm I'm developing, and I'll, I'll I'm trying to get better at this is to give the victim's agency and not just make it like, you know, some women lying dead somewhere. Oh, let's, you know, let's make it all about the police procedural into this or, you know, Uno O'Neill, who's a a journalist. Um, I don't want to make it all about her. It needs to be about the victims and I don't want my victims to be victims in inverted commas. I want them to be real they're not always alive. I'm sorry, they die. Um, you know, the, but the victims in my um, books aren't always the ones who die. There's not that. There's not a, a huge body count, and I don't want the victims to appear. I, I want them to appear as, and I want to write them and create them as real flesh and blood characters that you can think, ah, that's why they did X. You know, no one does bad things because they've had a really, really great life. Oh, great, a few will. You'll get, you know, you'll get the outliers that are just out and out mental psychopaths and, you know, I'm not going to say their country's run by them, I'm, but I'm saying, you know, people rise to power in, in certain ways and you just get out and out rank badgings. But most people, most people in our prisons today are there because, A, they've done bad things, but B, they've been failed by the system. And that's, it's... Dead easy to say if you'd never been a victim of crime then. And I'd be the first one if I was a victim of crime. Crikey, I'd want to go after someone and, you know, string them up. But when you look at it logically, you know, they're in there because the education system's failed them or they come from chaotic families or they don't have opportunities. And and then it just kind of, it's like a spiral of despair. So I I hope to try and, within my books, give agency to the victims. But what you're saying about the crimes, I know that I'm not very good at thinking of really inventive ways of killing people well I could be actually I could think of really quite horrific things but that's not what I want to do I want to say right how how is this tackled as you say there's only so many crimes eight someone dies that's it yeah. who killed or why I'm not sure people would enjoy it as much if that was the the basis of it I don't well some people do and I sometimes like you know out and out kind of really over the top weird kind of crime and and that's a good kind of form of escapism 
and people, as a crime writer, people always say to me, I've got a great idea for a book. And I want to just wear a T-shirt saying, I don't want an idea. I just want you to write my books for me. I've got loads of ideas. My head's bursting with ideas. It's actually just writing the books that are the, the hard part. But yeah. I think when you get, and this is what I try to tell any writers that ask for advice, very few writers ask me for advice, but if they do, get your characters. And if you have writer's block, it's because you don't know your character well enough and you don't know what your character's going to do. And also... Your character, I think, we're sitting in the BBC Scotland building alongside the Clyde, but your character, I think, is, I don't know if it's cinematic or what the equivalent would be for TV, but there's definitely, you know, she works obviously in the media Ah, well, well. she's a journalist, and I I wanted her to be a journalist, because I wanted her, I didn't want a police procedural, because A, I'm too lazy to actually find out what the police do, although I have a very, very good police contact and he's always on the end of the phone and he gives me great advice but I didn't want it I wanted someone that could work slightly outside the law yeah and slightly I didn't and she does things that she doesn't quite well she kind of does because she's a journalist she knows when she's overstepping the mark but I wanted her to get kind of things that would get away with without you know her superintendent kind of pulled her in for a disciplinary and, and what have you. And basically, it was a long-winded way of saying it. I think it would make a great TV series. Oh, do you really? Oh, well, thank yeah. you. When do I start? Can I play myself? <laughs> well, have you ever had a thought of who, you, who, you, who would play um, oh, oh, crikey. Um, I don't know. Do you know, because she's about 40, um, crikey, if I had my wish list... I don't know, Ashley Jensen, is that, am I allowed to say that? I don't know. Uh, anyone really. I, you know, honestly, they could come and it could be blooming. If someone brought the idea to me and said, I will make it into a film or a TV series, I would be so happy. I would probably just be nodding like a nodding yeah. dog. And <laughs> Regardless whatever, of who cast. Whatever they said, i go, yep, that's yeah. perfect. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, no, I haven't really thought. I don't know really because I can I know what she looks like but I can't see her face do you know what I mean but I know kind of and I wish I hadn't described her physically I wish I'd let the readers decide what she looked like but I did that in the first book when I wasn't very confident I'll leave that one with you Uh uh-huh the the next category is a book you couldn't be paid to read again and I know like a lot of writers you were really reluctant to name and shame because as we spoke earlier on people you know, like you, you invest so much in, in your. I, I'm really reluctant to slag off other writers, and and because it's such a taste thing. I mean, I got one star the other day from some American woman because she would read seventy two percent of um, the Quiet Ones, my my last Uno O'Neill book, and she said loved this book, got to seventy two percent, and she slagged off Donald Trump. I'm not having this, and so that was one star, and it brought my American ratings right down. Um, so it's such a matter of taste, and to be honest. If I was if I was that if I hated a book that much, I would stop reading it. Um, See, I'm kind of like you. That's why I find this a difficult one. So I can. I, I'm not. I, it's not that I'm not going to answer. It, the, I, I'd be reluctant to slag off another writer's work because it is just taste. And the ones that have been absolutely dire, to be honest, I tend not even if they're that bad. I would tend not even to start them because yeah. I wouldn't. I would see the reviews and I, and I would read a blurb and I would have a quick look at it and I would think, mm, nah, it's not for me. And the few that I have re- read over, you know, uh, the years that I've not liked, I, I've just given up after a couple of chapters and I think, nah, it's not for me. Because sometimes I find I'll start a book and it's just not happening, so I put it away because I think life's too short. There's well, it other depends books. what mood you're in as well. Yeah, but then I, so, there's times I'll, I'll go back again at some point. I, maybe, I usually maybe try it two or three times, and if after the third time it's still not happening, then it's not for me. Ah, but if I hate it that much, I would just not 
read it. So, I suppose that goes back to what we were saying originally that you know sometimes. So, for example, I, when I read *The Road* by Cormac McCarthy, mm-hmm. it just blew me away. I thought that is just that's perfection. Well, strangely enough, I was asked this this very question came up as well in a, a Facebook group. UK crime scene or something or just book the book lovers cafe or something on Facebook and someone said what's the worst book you've ever read and I gave that answer as well just saying well no I'm not that's a, yeah. not a, a very nice question because there's a lot of authors on that and someone said The Road is the worst wow. book they've ever read so that's just a matter <laughs> of taste isn't it that's incredible wow. well, well sometimes people just get bad taste but that's one you know when we're saying that was that book that you, that you aspire to write is, for me right as well as that but the other books where you just give up the other ones that you think right well I'm if that gets published, surely I, I must get published. Uh, well, it's, but it's, it just depends. It, 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 and I see books on bestseller lists, and I've read them, and I'm thinking, yeah, they're quite good, but they're not brilliant. But it just depends on what people like, and it's and it's it's just so much a matter of taste. So I'm not going to answer that. Is that okay? No, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> we are we're coming to the end of this podcast because you have to go back to your day oh, job. Oh, Craig, I know. I have to go and tell people it's busy on the M8. Other motorways are available. But the, the book you've last read or currently reading you actually mentioned it earlier on in the course of this it was Love and Ruin by Paula McLean uh-huh. it's, it's, it's beautiful as I say it's um, it's written from the point of view of Martha Gellhorn the, the war correspondent and it's a lovely book she was Ernest Hemingway's third wife and it, it, she's such a fabulous character I'd heard of Martha Gellhorn but this book really brings her to life and Paula McLean is such a brilliant writer and I also I um, interviewed her at the Borders Book Festival the previous year because I thought it was in fact because I was just thinking it was the same year but it wasn't because I also stayed at the same place overnight as she did so um, and that was quite nice and I had to say to her at the time oh I haven't had time to read the book because I was only asked that day I was doing another event and they said look any chance you can just do this one Um, so I'm really glad I, I took time to read it so that's the last book I've actually finished reading because this is one of the great things for me about the podcast is I just get loads of new book recommendations so they're fantastic I, and again it's it's a matter of taste but I would say but if you're going to read Paula read The Paris Wife first and then and it just makes better sense well Teresa I'm going to have to let you go because uh, the people of Glasgow need to know what's happening in, in the, the whole of Scotland the whole of Scotland <laughs> Waiting at my every word. Oh, but, uh, goodness. It's been a real pleasure having you. Oh, on the thanks so much, Paul. This has been super. And I'm sorry, this little room, if you could, if there was any um, visual on this, you'd see we're absolutely stifling. It's really warm in here, isn't it? And we're both going to go away and rack our brains and think who's the perfect person to play Uno and Neil. Oh, well, listen, if you can, please um, let me know. I will do, but thanks very much. No, thank you, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.